So we end this morning with uh, quite a verse. One verse, that's it, Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's it. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, the call upon our lives is significant. You sent your Son to show us the way, and his words we we read this morning challenge us, but we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and insight into what we read, that we might understand your will for us, your desires for us individually as a church family in our homes, that we would understand that better. So we need your wisdom. We ask you give it. We ask confidently, knowing, Lord, that as we ask you, uh, you give. So we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for anybody who is in the room, if you're outside or uh, at home, are there any perfectionists in our midst, people who just have to get something done just right? It drives them crazy if it can't. Yeah, no one in here, I'm sure. Um, They're all staying at home. Perfectionists, where you hate making a mistake, you might get incredibly embarrassed if you're one degree off, you go, oh gosh, like you, you lose sleep trying to finish it out. You have to edit it just right. You have to get it just right. You can make no mistake. If that is you, you can welcome, welcome to the club. We have a support group that meets today at two o'clock upstairs um, for recovering perfectionists. People uh, get really annoyed with me because I've, I've mellowed quite a bit. Uh, over time, but I still uh, hold myself to a pretty high standard of getting something done uh, and want it to look a certain way and will uh, have been known to lose a night's sleep in order to do that. Uh, But not always the best habit to have. Have you ever been challenged on something that you think you might do well? Somebody addresses it in you and you get frustrated by that person um, they'd say, hey, you know, maybe if you spent your time differently, you wouldn't have that issue. You wouldn't be so tired, or you might have this uh, scenario fixed, or you would be more present at home if you would just spend your time a little differently. Or, um, you know, somebody might say, and this is like, you know, the, them's fighting words, but when somebody might say, hey, you could uh, eat, eat more vegetables, and somehow you just turn into rage. Can you tell me what to eat? You see what you ate the other day? Oh my gosh. Uh, money? Yeah. Everybody said maybe you spend too much or you're too interested in this. Or maybe if you just kind of dial down the spending right here, you wouldn't feel the way uh, that you did. Or uh, your attitude towards maybe your spouse or your children has been brought up. Your kids might say to you, hey, mom, hey, dad, you know, uh, you've been mean lately. And you're like, no, I haven't. You've been annoying. If you're not annoying, I'm not mean. It's how it works. Isn't it funny when things that we think we do well or things that we think that uh, don't need to be addressed, the moment that somebody might address it, and it can honestly or often be as gracious as possible, but still the moment somebody kind of says, you might consider, what about this? That it does something in us, and very 
often we lash out. We get frustrated. Why? I think it's because we want to look good in front of people. I said before, and this was a kind of a lesson I learned from a mentor of mine, that you know you're operating in the flesh, uh, meaning that way opposite the spirit, contrast to the spirit. You know you're operating in the flesh if you want to look good and be right. If those are your main concerns, and if that's what's bugging you, looking good or being right, that's what, if that's what's motivating you, there's a decent chance you're operating in the flesh. Because when you're operating in the Spirit, and you think that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we think of those things, we don't generally lash out, do we? But when we're trying to get self-protective or defend ourselves, promote ourselves, when that starts to happen, we usually can get a little frustrated when people address things in us. So it's funny because we kind of have this way of saying nobody's perfect, but also getting really mad when anybody addresses some imperfection in us. It's just welcoming, it's just how we operate. So we want grace when somebody might go, well, yeah, nobody's, nobody's perfect, we're all going to screw it up. But then when somebody says, hey, you screwed that up, we're like, shut up, I didn't do that. Like, we get mad. And so we live in this bit of a contrast between what we know is true and how we act is true. Like, so we know certain things are true about us, but once they get addressed, then we kind of act like those things aren't true anymore. It's pretty funny. And if you're a perfectionist and you're either used to doing well or you just don't like doing poorly, either of those things might work. Like, that's, if that's who you are, you know, I know, we know that it can destroy you. It can absolutely crush you to live underneath the weight of other people's expectations or even your own expectations. That's a really hard place to be. It's a very frustrating place to be. And if we compare ourselves to other people who might feel the same way, well, it's just a recipe for disaster. We start to go, well, I'm not a mom like that. I don't earn that much. I can't speak like that. I don't look like that. And then to top it off, here's Jesus in Matthew 5, 48 saying, be perfect. Be perfect. I mean, I'm cool letting you down, but now I have Jesus telling me I have to be perfect. Like I need one more person to make me feel this way. Like living up to mom's expectation wasn't enough. Now I have God Almighty in there saying you have to be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, I think for one though, we have to be clear here, I think Jesus' expectation in Matthew 5, 48 is real. It's not lip service. He's not saying, JK, I just wanted to say that. I think he has a real expectation in Matthew 5, 48, because Jesus wastes no words. But we also have to kind of go, well, what do I do with what he said? And I think sometimes as we, as we read a passage like Matthew 5, 48, we'll do a couple of things. I'm going to use the phrase ethical demands, because all of Matthew 5 at this point has been kind of demanding something of how we live, isn't it? I mean, he's saying, you've heard it say, but I say this. Just demanding something of how we live. And one thing that we might tend to do is kind of go, oh no, like I don't have to worry about any of that because I have my faith in Jesus and he's perfect and now I'm good. And so done. I'm, I'm totally covered. And I think, yes, you're totally covered in Christ, totally covered. His perfection is your perfection. You have his righteousness. But then why did he spend so much time teaching how he would want his people to operate 
I mean, if you think about so much of, of the whole of Christ's teaching in our New Testament examples in these epistles, there is a lot that resides within them on how we are to live. And so did Jesus just teach us a whole bunch of things just to say, just kidding, it's all about just only uh, believing in me and that's all that matters anyways. So I think sometimes we'll just kind of run to one position to say, I don't know what to do with this or how, what Jesus expects of me, so I'm going to go ahead and just leave it alone and go, faith in him is all I need, the end. Or we kind of run in this other direction, we feel this enormous pressure to check the boxes and do the things and do it right and be sure that we're doing everything that Jesus says, which we know we can't do. So we often are going to gravitate to one of these spots. And what I want you to do this morning is kind of feel a little bit of tension and not just dismiss Jesus's demands because we want to kind of go, oh, it doesn't matter because in Jesus, everybody's free, which is true, but also not go, I got to get all these things done. We have to, the disciple has to kind of go, well, what is, what is Jesus saying here? What do I do with this expectation that he's laid upon us? How do we understand it? We don't want to dismiss everything he has taught previously just to kind of go, oh, it doesn't matter. But we don't want to go, it's only about my external qualifications, because that's wrong too. So that's where we're going to be today. Matthew 5, 48, trying to put these pieces together in a way that helps us go, okay, I'm free in Christ and I live for Christ. And there is an order here that matters. So what we're going to start doing is just kind of go, let's remember where we've been, because it's been some weeks now of going through Matthew 5, so let's talk about specifically this part on the discussion of the law, and then we'll go from there. So we start with, we're going to go back to even verse 20. Over a month ago, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Talked to you about how Jesus' fulfillment then becomes our own. So I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he spends a lot of time teaching from the law, doesn't he? And expanding on the law with an expectation that his hearers hear what he is saying. And what we heard in this, especially in verse 20, is that Jesus expects a greater righteousness, a greater kind of righteousness. Remember we talked about right standing and right living, that both of those might be, when you read the word righteousness, it might be one of those two ideas, that you're standing right with God or you're living rightly with God. And when you see that word, it might mean one of those two. Often when you're reading like the Apostle Paul, he's going to be talking about your standing with God. But when you read, when we went through the book of James, James was incredibly concerned with your living, wasn't he? And the whole book of James was about living, 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 living. So when we did Galatians first, <clears throat> at the beginning of the year, you guys remember the beginning of the year? Like what, <clears throat> like that was like 24 months ago, back in January. Um, so we did Galatians to kind of go, this, let's talk about right standing. James talked about right living. Now we're hearing Jesus teach us about right standing and right living is kind of how it feels. He's kind of talking about both, and we feel this kind of tension. So Jesus, in verse 20, says, For I tell you, remember this is the beginning of this whole instruction section, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And we kind of, when we went through that, we saw that Jesus expects that greater righteousness, greater than religious leaders, greater than your pastor, greater than your community group leader, greater than your mom or your dad or your grandparent who showed you or brought you to every ministry event ever and was, you know, I went to the church anytime the doors were open, greater than that person. Jesus demands something of us. He expects our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now remember, what is a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? It's not a righteousness that I get by just living like you do. It's not a righteousness that I live uh, just by following the rules. It is the righteousness of Christ given to me. That that's actually the one that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And remember the the new covenant promise that that God will give us new hearts and put a new spirit within us. He'll remove our heart of stone. He'll give us a heart of flesh. He's going to put his spirit within us and cause us to follow his statutes and carefully observe his ordinances. Like that, there's this there's this time when we'll all be able to do it. And we're not even there all the way yet, <clears throat> living in this world that we live in. But we do have the Spirit. And we do have the righteousness of Jesus given to us. But Jesus is still coming, and he's going to still right the wrongs that have yet to be corrected. He still is not fully, in the sense that it still lives in this earth, eradicated sin, Satan, and death. And that still is to come. And we still look to that and long for that, that we don't live in this side of the world and go, oh, I have everything that I need. I'm good. But we are given the righteousness of God through Jesus. So that's that positional part, that we are going to stand right with God through faith in Jesus. Jesus says you need a greater righteousness. Now, it's, not, it's, it's a little unfair to the ones who are listening because we have the, the scriptures now and we can go, oh, well, this happened, right? And the people who are hearing this, remember, as they're hearing this, they don't know all that's going to come in Jesus' life. They don't have the letter to the Romans. They don't have the letter to the Galatians that chronologically, they're hearing Jesus instruct them that they need a greater righteousness. You have to remember that as we read it. Like Those who are hearing it, are hearing something different than you might hear, right? You're connecting dots that they they didn't connect because they didn't have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus yet as they're hearing it, the sending of the Spirit, the instruction from the apostles to the churches. And so as Jesus goes into this next section of teaching to them, they are going to realize that they have a significant need because all the ways that they might check the boxes with the you have heard statements, they realize that they actually don't check the boxes as they thought. So he states this, you need this greater righteousness. As we read the the scriptures further, we go, oh, okay, that's the righteousness of God for us. But he then again goes back to ethical teaching. How do you live? How do you live? And it's not just externally. So what we see then in the coming passages through verses 21 through 47, is that Jesus reveals then that greater righteousness. He teaches and instructs them on, let me show you what I'm talking about. That it's not just something about how you live. It's not just, it's not just going on externally, but it also has to do with what's going on in your heart. How you live, how you feel, how you think, and how that affects who you are and what you do. So Jesus then begins instructing 
in a sense, just kind of shaving away every little hope that we have that we're getting life done the right way, right? So it's just kind of carving all our hopes and expectations out like that Thanksgiving turkey, just kind of taking it piece by piece. And then we realize that we don't have a leg to stand on when it's all said and done. So we'll just talk very briefly about these teachings that he did. He talked about murder and anger, and that if we're angry or we cry out in frustration or we speak out in frustration or we go, you fool, I can't believe you did that, then we've actually done a reprehensible act. And so what does he say? He doesn't say, don't be angry. He says, pursue reconciliation. That was his application there. So if you have your gift, but you know that your brother has something against you, go to your brother and make that right. Why? Because anger festers. But when you reconcile, you have to lay it down. That's a heart position, isn't it? It's not just going, no, we're good, we're good, we're good. And then like right after that, you go, can you believe that they think we're good? Can you believe it? No, things are fine. I just can't believe they acted that way. Like, see, right, what, what, what you're saying and what you're also saying, those aren't the same thing. So telling somebody we're good or smiling at them around the Thanksgiving table or, you know, giving them a hug, like that, that does not mean you're good. It just means you're faking it at being good. Maybe. Usually we're not good fakers either. So Jesus' application goes to heart. Reconcile. And that's when you realize, well, I don't like to reconcile. I don't want to reconcile. I want to be mad. I like being mad. I feel like I was wronged. And they deserve to know that and feel that. And they need to be in the penalty box a little while for it. They, need to just, be, they just need to be there and enjoy it while I laugh. What do we realize in that moment? You've heard that it was said, do not murder. Haven't killed them with my you know, body. In every other way, I wish that they'd be dead. His second one, he talks about the physical act of adultery. You've heard it say, I don't commit adultery. Check, check, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But I tell you, if you've looked at anybody lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Whoop. So then what does he say? So if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What does he then instruct us but to say, be serious about your sin. Don't be okay with it just kind of residing. You go, well, the house is mainly clean, but don't go in there. Which is how most of us are going to clean this week. There are 80% of the rooms you can go in, 20% of the rooms do not go in there. It's the same thing going on in us, though, isn't it? I will show you most of my life, especially the good parts. I'm not going to show you the bad parts. I'm not going to show you the embarrassing parts, the parts that could get me arrested or the parts that could get me divorced. Those parts aren't going to come up. But they're there, and that's what Jesus is showing us. So remember he gives this kind of, hey, unless your righteousness ex- uh, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and then he's like, You've heard this said, and you know, the weight gets a little heavier, doesn't it? (laughs) You've heard this said, and the weight gets a little heavier, doesn't it? The third one talks about uh, our just kind of loose rules for divorce. 
You've heard it say, don't get divorced. Or if anybody needs to divorce, you just hand them a written certification. That's kind of it. Just kind of write it, write it off, and you're good. And Jesus goes way higher than that in his expectation, doesn't he? And the reason that he does that is to call out the religious amongst them and amongst us that go, oh, no, I was in the right. And he's like, that's not how you do it. That's not, that's not how you pursue divorce by going, oh, what, am, I, am I justified in my pursuit? Is it okay? He, goes, he has a whole, whole different expectation of how we would live and the fidelity that we would keep to the promises that we make. Why? Because we're his. But yet we realize even then that only one person has ever kept their word perfectly. Only one person has ever kept their commitment perfectly. This is why I personally am a, a big fan of the, uh, the assurance of salvation, as we would call it. You might have heard that, that phrase, assurance of salvation. Uh, because if salvation is dependent upon how tightly I can hold on to it, I don't hold on very hard or very tightly. That it is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God that I get to be in a relationship with. It's not, it has nothing to do with my ability to hold on tightly enough, because I can't, and I don't, and I won't. That there's only been one who is perfect. There's only one who keeps his word. There's only one who has fulfilled all promises, past, present, and future, and he's my savior. Jesus tells us not to focus on retribution, Right? He says, don't fight in court for what you think you're owed. Just give gladly. Just joyfully give it over. He talks to us about oaths and says, keep, the, keep your word. Don't come up with some fake way of keeping your word or not keeping your word. Don't swear by heaven or by earth because you fear that if you go, well, you know, as God is my witness, I will and so we say, well, as this room is my witness. You know, like we, kinda, uh, we find other ways to diminish the standard so that we can get out of our word. And you remember, you heard Patrick preaching on this, like we're people of the truth. Our Savior's truth, so our word should be true. You should be able to hear what I have to say and know that I mean it. And then uh, Michael preached last week on loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And that was an extrapolation. Michael, Michael kind of explained it, that, that we read, <clears throat> you know, love your neighbor. There isn't a specific, and hate your enemy. But as it was extrapolated, you go, oh, okay, well, I love these folks, and these people, the outsiders, are my enemy. And what does Jesus do again but flip it? And go, no, I want you to love your enemy and pray for your persecutor. Which is what he did, didn't he? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is the one who showed us this. So these six illustrations show us the greater righteousness. And where we're left reading these is, Well, shoot. I mean, I can't do that. I've never done that. I have the Spirit, and I still haven't done that. 
I still get angry. I still yell. I still lust. I still feel this way. I still go back on my word and hope no one calls me on it. I still do this. So the people hearing it then and the people hearing it now are going, I have a problem. At each turn, we should not go and go, well, let me just be around people who have more of a problem so I feel better about myself, which is often how we pick our friends. Who's worse? If they're worse, I'll hang with them. That way I look good. So we can't do that. If we just compare ourselves to one another, we're in trouble. So we really need to run to Jesus. But Jesus isn't done laying it on pretty thickly. Matthew 5, 48. Let's look at it again. You, therefore, in summary, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's go back a little bit on the history of just some of this so we realize that Jesus isn't just dropping a new idea to us. There's similar language in Leviticus. For example, Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You shall be holy because I'm holy. Just similar phrasing. God is saying, you're going to be holy, set apart as a people, because I am holy, I'm set apart. And then from this, what does God give from this phrase in 19.2? He starts to give commands, ways to live. God has an expectation of his people of a holy life that stands out and reflects the character of its maker. He has an expectation of that. Also in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18.13, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Then there's an explanation after that of how Israel is supposed to live in relationship to the nations around them. In Luke chapter 6, which some call the Sermon on the Plains, it has a lot of characteristics similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Plains, Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, a lot of these topics are there but shorter, but if you get to 636, you read this, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So what do we see in each of these statements from Leviticus or Deuteronomy or from Luke? Well, the big thing is that right living in any way only happens when your focus is on God in the right place. See how he says that? Be holy as you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Be merciful as your Father is merciful, and in Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your Father is perfect. That we only achieve what we're aiming for if we're pointed in the right direction, and God is our standard. So we don't look down at one another, we look up at Him. But perfect is a different word. It's different than holy, it's different than merciful, but not fully. That's the thing. God is the aim, and we want to be like him, and there's no question there. 
right? We want to live like God, be like God, follow God. He's the one. Holiness in Judaism was largely an external look. It's not a bad thing, meaning it was a, a way to live, a way of life that was holy. But Jesus con- continues to push beyond the external. He goes, no, don't just focus on that. Because that's where it always goes in our sinful hearts. We go, oh, externally I'm good, thus internally I'm good. And remember the way of the gospel is not that. It's internally you're broken. You have to fix that if you have any hope of how you live mattering. So you have to fix what's broken. And you can't fix it on the outside. You can only fix it on the inside. Jesus isn't ever satisfied with people going through the motions. But there's another use of perfect in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. You would enter life, keep the commandments. Enter, interesting again that Jesus says, You want to have life, keep, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? Jesus said, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all these I've kept. All these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, listen to this, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So there again is Jesus using this idea of perfect, but notice how the word perfect is tied to an action, a way of, of being. If you were to be perfect, you say you've done all these things. If you really are going to be perfect, then go and sell what you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. So there's this idea that we can get at that the the perfect person is the one who is aligned with God's will and God's ways. It's the one who is properly aligned with God. A lot of people around here like to go to the chiropractor because we say we get out of alignment, right? Okay, I'm out of alignment. So I got to, and it's pretty cool to have somebody just kind of move you around and all kinds of things you never knew existed cracked before. But it's not just that kind of, hey, let's just fix a couple of things and we'll be good. Because as Jesus talks about perfection, he's always digging deeper, isn't he? He's always pushing more, isn't he? So even with uh, the ruler there in Matthew 19, who probably did have a rather pious life. Let's not mistake that. Let's not go, oh, he was just a wretch over here who didn't do, do good. I'm going to put that in air quotes. Good things. He was a person who did follow the law. But Jesus still found him lacking. And he went to possessions with this guy. And it's funny because possessions are what? They're a position of the heart. What we have, what we take pride in, the comfort that it gives, and our willingness to part with it demonstrate a lot of how we actually feel God operates with us and with this world. That's why in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is pointing to Jesus to explain why we need to be generous with each other. Because Jesus was generous with us. He was rich, but for our sake became poor. So Jesus says, the guy says, I'm good. And Jesus just has this way of scratching at the surface and going, are you sure? 
So he keeps stacking in Matthew 5 this weight on us as we hear it, this expectation on us as we read it. And I want to be this person. I think you want to be this person. I want to listen to the Lord. And I want to do what he says. And I don't want to fear man. I don't want to be worried about the outcome. I want to be able to say, if I perish, I perish. I want to stand firm. At work, when somebody's saying something they shouldn't say, I want to step in. And around the Thanksgiving table, when somebody says the thing I know they're going to say, I want to be gracious in my response and not passive-aggressive. I want to do that. We all have those things. But what we often have more than that are regrets. All the times the test was there and we did not pass. All the times we, we, we knew, hey, it should go right, and we go left. So we'll start with one idea that we always have to remember. Because if we hear the command, and we hear Matthew 5, and we listen to it as it ends in, in verse 48, we ask ourselves this question, who can do this? Who can do this? Because nobody's perfect, which is a cop-out, right? For us just doing what we want sometimes. Well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But we hear this, we go, who can do this? One person, Jesus. So we have to start with him. Jesus stood up under the demand of the law. And he wasn't crushed. So does that mean that we are without hope in seeking a good life? That we just time and time again just go, forget it. I don't even care. I don't think so. And does that mean that this whole teaching in Matthew 5 is just some kind of cool thought experiment? Oh, wouldn't it be cool if you could do that? Or wouldn't it be cool if you could do that? But we all know you can't, so don't worry about it. So we should just rip it out of our Bibles. No, it's there. Jesus taught it. I don't think that we should abandon all hope when we read Jesus' words. And I don't think that we should just think it'd be cool to discuss what if we could speak with more truth, or what would it be like, how cool would it be if we didn't lust as much? You know, wouldn't that be neat? I don't think that we, we should just kind of go, well, one day that'll be real nice. Jesus is concerned about how you live, but to ever focus on how we live, we have to focus on who we are. And that's the thing that will get messed up. So there's how you live and there's who you are. His teaching shows us that our best attempts at ethics do nothing if we aren't different internally. There are best attempts at reaching for, striving for, trying to be like, trying to hit that. We'll do nothing if we aren't tuned the right way. So there's two things that the disciple needs. They need both position and power. The position and the empowerment. Both of those things are kind of necessary for us to hear what Jesus is teaching and live as he would have. 
So with position, I am talking about what happens when we place our faith in Jesus, right? That's that right standing. We need to be in a place where we don't have to worry about falling short because we've come to grips with our failure and our sinfulness and the fact that we never seem to be able to do it. If, we, if, if in our perfectionism, which is just a veiled attempt at looking good, but if in that approach we can't actually ever confess that we have significant need in our sin and turn to Jesus who died for our sin and rose again, if we can't look to him, then we're done for. So we need to be in the right position. Sometimes you just need that reminder. Like, you know, you, you know me in, in sports references, but like we need the reminder that we're on the team. You're not trying to make the team. <laughs> like, like you're not still in tryouts, like going, well, I just, I don't want to screw up, right? Like if I spot up and shoot it right here and I miss it, Jesus might kick me off. Like, so, so no, you're on the team. So just go hard. <laughs> like you're there. And that's a reminder that sometimes we need to go, I don't have to try and, I'm not trying to be sure that I only do the things God likes so that I, he likes me more. That he knows all of us and that through faith in his son, we are made right with him. We need that. We need that. So that we don't have the condemnation when we strive to be as holy as we can in this life and fail. When we seek to pursue obedience to the scriptures and we don't do it. When we realize that God had an expectation and I did not live up to that standard. We need to remember that the position doesn't change. We're on the team through faith in Jesus. When I talk about the power, you heard Carla teaching on it. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit that is able to empower us to live in the way that God would expect. So we need the position and the empowerment so that when we read Matthew 5, we don't just kind of throw it all out and go, I can't do it. But we come to grips with the the frustrating feeling of our inability, turn to the Lord, and then in humility go, Lord, let's give it a run. Like, let's give it a run. I want to do better by my spouse. I want to do better by my brothers and sisters in the room. I want to be able to say something and mean it. I care about integrity. And I do it all from being his. And it's so hard for me, and I'm still getting there, and I think some of you are too, if not all of us. I'm still getting there where I have to go, man, you get embarrassed to mess it up, but then sometimes you just kind of get tired, and you're like, you know what? I'm shocked I even did this well. You know, the, 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 that little movement. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked I got that high. I was, <laughs> that's higher than I thought. Granted, like, that we're going way up there, but that I did this, I'm about to throw a party. Or this fear that people will see something in us that's not perfect. To be able to say, you know what, the Lord's already seen that. You know what else he's seen? All the other things that I hide from you. Every single one of them. He sees all those too. And I'm still on the team. Through faith in his son. That's why you can go, let's just do it. I'm not going to get cut. So let's go. 
How do we respond to this expectation of be perfect? There's two things. There's the surrendering of our heart and the giving of our lives. By the surrendering of our heart, I just mean that immaterial part of you, not the organ, right? Don't do that. The seat of your emotions, the place where you form your conviction, that part of you that God sees and God knows and that you know isn't right. Surrender your heart. Give it over. And if you this morning have not placed your faith in Jesus, his grace stands for you. It's to trust to see that he is good and to go, I need that. I have been trying to look good. I have been trying to be right. I have been trying to hide how ugly I actually am from everybody else, and it is killing me. Well, it's already killed Jesus, so you don't need to go ahead and do it again. You just run to him. And let what he's done for you cover what you've been unable to do. Surrender of your heart. And then it's the giving of your lives. And that's where you hear like in Romans 12.1, I urge you brothers by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And in Romans 12, he's actually starting to give like ethical demands again. But you have to kind of work through all of that. Who am I? and What's going on in me? And I need to be fixed. And then the Lord fixes you. And now you go, okay. With that in mind, all I have is yours, God. What do you need from me? And his answer is everything. Everything. So I often say like walking with the Lord is one big yes with a lot of little yeses coming after it. Right? And the big yes is our salvation. I trust you, Lord. I have faith in you. And all the little yeses are, yes, I will apologize. Yes, I will tell him I love him. Yes, I will ask forgiveness. Yes, I will do what I read here. It's the one big yes and a lot of little yeses coming after it. And that's like, that's just how we are going to be doing it from here until the Lord returns. And we're with him and we go, oh, finally, I'm not in conflict anymore. So we don't want to diminish living for him. But we can only do it if we're right with him. So we get right with God so we can live right for God. Surrender your heart and give your life. Perfectionism can kill you, but it can also free you. It can free you when you realize that God has satisfied the need for your perfection. The most stringent requirement of a clean heart. Then we're free to run with him as our aim. I want to end. I've I've mentioned I use R.T. Francis' commentary a bit in this, and I've I've been using his. uh, I love what he says here as he finishes out Matthew 5. The disciple's lifestyle is to be different from the other people's in that it draws its inspiration not from the norms of society, but the character of God. Even the God-given law had been accommodated to a practical ethical code with which the Jewish society had come to feel comfortable. But Jesus is demanding a different approach. Not via laws read as simply rules of conduct, but rather 
by looking behind those laws at the mind and character of God himself. Through Jesus, this is Hans again, we are able to see what the law demanded. Through faith in Jesus, we are able to have his obedience applied to us. And then through that faith, we're able to work out our salvation in a way that it reflects Jesus to the world and shows people about a different and good life. Be perfect, we read. And with joy, the Christian can go, okay, because of him. 